what is it that makes somebody buy a white car? Oh, you're a dick. <laughs> I, I honestly want to know because it seems like people who buy white cars only ever buy white cars. And then there's other people. And <laughs> other are. people never buy white cars. Like, what, what, what is that about somebody that, that flips that switch? I have a theory. I I'd like I, to hear. Can I hear the theory before yeah, I answer the question? I don't know if I've told you this theory before. It's not a. It's not my theory. It's a common, commonly known thing in the car industry. It's basically, uh, and fashion as well. If you have a car or anything else that is kind of ugly, like it's misshapen, like it's it's kind of lumpy and not good looking, or has some awkward parts, uh, get that car in black because black hides the parts of the car that aren't good-looking. This is also the theory behind the little black dress and why black is quote-unquote slimming when when you wear it. If you want to hide what's there, wear black. Now, white is the opposite of that. If you love every single curve of the sheet metal of a particular car, white will show every single curve of the sheet metal of that car. And it's a good test of whether you really like that car, because when you see it in white and all of a sudden, like, like you ever, can you imagine seeing, like, a white C6 Corvette? Like, the butt would look humongous. And you're like, ooh, actually, geez, that Corvette's butt is big. But if you see a black one, the giant butt on the Corvette, you're like, oh, it kind of blends in. doesn't look so bad, you know? Uh, so one theory on the white car is if you really, really like the the way the sheet metal of a car looks in all aspects and you want to see every single part of it, Get the car in white. See, if that were true, then I feel like there would be more cross-pollination of, of people who would own white cars and non-white cars. But I don't really see that a lot. What I usually see is people who, have, who only ever have white cars and then other people who never have white cars. Well, there's also the white is boring and neutral camp, and on the other side of that, there is the white shows dirt a lot camp. So there are other like more mundane, practical reasons to get white or not get white. Lots of people avoid white because of the dirt issue, and lots of people get white because they're like, oh, I can't really decide what color I want this car. And, and in particular, the if you buy cheap cars, sometimes your choices are only like white, black, and one ugly color. Oh, right? no, it's gray, gray, and gray. And silver. Don't forget silver. Yeah, gray, if silver. If you're lucky, there's silver. Yeah. I was just looking at the bottom of the line of cords because I'm probably going to get a new cord sometime this year or next. And but I thought if you had you a get, Civic. If you get, oh, you know, I, I don't like my Civic. We'll talk about that some other time. But <laughs> if, if, you, if you get the bottom of the line of cord with the stick shift, you're, you have three color choices. And silver. it's like white, white, black, and some ugly tan. And I don't think you even get silver as a choice. I have to look at it again to see what the exact colors are. But your choices are very limited. And so white ends up being like the, like, I don't know, the, just the punt color. See, I always thought that was silver, because there was a time from probably about 2002 until maybe 2010 where every car was available in 14 shades of silver and then, like, black and blue and, and white, maybe, and that was it. Like, all the other colors got pushed away except in, in usually like in high-end sports cars. Maybe then you can get red or something. But all the other colors went away, and you only had all these different shades of silver, and every single car you saw on the road in the last decade is silver. Well, and that seems silver. to have finally come back now. Like, and it, oh, excuse me, light silver. It wasn't, it wasn't even like the nice dark deep ones that looked kind of nice. It was like light silver. So every car looked the same. Not even nice like the DeLorean, like just light silver. That's not paint on the DeLorean. Yeah, I know. 
Well, it's, so it's Casey, as, as the proud owner of a white car, why, why don't you... <laughs> oh, not just uh, one white car. Oh, no, reveal no, the it, secrets of this, the this white goes car. Back, this goes back quite a ways. So actually, one of the things I figured we could talk about at some juncture was our individual car histories. And actually, to answer this question, I need to go back through my individual car history. So uh, seems like as good as have, time as any. Yeah, so I hope you have a Tell us about ready, all of your white cars. Yeah, it, th- this is true. So uh, when I started driving, my dad had a 1994 Saturn SL2, which I think was like 16 grand off the showroom floor or something like that. Uh, the thing was a piece of garbage the m- moment it rolled off the assembly line with its plastic panels and the whole rigmarole. But uh, it was as nice of a piece of garbage as you could get, I suppose, and that was white. That's a, well, a glowing yeah. recommendation. Yeah. Uh, actually, I love that car until one of the wheels fell off as I was driving it, which, <laughs> by the way, is another story I'd like to tell at some point. See, I'm already foreshadowing. I can handle this. Um, but then after that, by pure happenstance, we had a, a friend of my dad's had a 1991 uh, 300ZX, the non-turbo, very boring, overweight, and generally useless kind. And that was white, and we ended up my my parents ended up buying that as a fun car because it had t tops, which kids these days don't even know what those are. But suffice it to say, you could remove two panels on the roof of the car, and and you only have one small sliver of structure between them. And that was white. And when I graduate, or when I was my spring semester senior year of college, I I bought that car, car off my parents and I drove that. And so now I've gone from Saturn to 300ZX, both white. Well, the 300ZX ended up always being broken, go figure, because it was a 91 and this was 2004. So at some point I thought, well, you know what, if I'm going to pay $500 a month in mechanics fees, why don't I just buy a new car and pay the four or $500 a month or whatever it may be to a, to a loan? And I decided to get a, a Subaru Legacy GT so it was pretty much all the speed of the WRX, but none of the boy racer look at me kind of looks. And just by do a whole pure, episode on that sometime, by the way. Yeah, we, I know. Uh, and so just by virtue of the fact that I've had two white cars before. Oh, and by the way, when the Z was broken, I borrowed my dad's white Wrangler. Um, and so by virtue of always having been in white cars, I figured, well, the hell with it. I'll just get it in white. And I bought that that Subaru new. Well, then just a few months ago, I decide, well, the Subaru is starting to spend more time off the road than on. So let me finally turn into a complete prick or, or remove all doubt from the fact that I'm a complete prick. And let me follow in our good friend Marco's footsteps and get myself a uh, three series. And it was by pure happenstance that I got a white 335. And actually, I had nearly bought, I, I'm going to butcher the, the name of the blue, but I want to say it was a Laguna Seca blue. It was a BMW individual color, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I almost bought a 335 that had that unbelievably pretty blue, but the deal fell through. And I just so happened to find this one in white. So to be honest with you, for this car, I had no intention of buying a white one. It was just by pure happenstance that that's how it worked out. And of course, now Marco mercilessly makes fun of me for the fact that I've always driven white cars. See, if 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 it had only been if this was your second white car or your third white car, I would believe that story. Well, it is my third. If you don't count the time when I borrowed Dad's Wrangler. Well, and and the ones you had before, it sounds like it's like what your fifth. No, it's the Saturn, the Z, the borrowed Wrangler, and then the uh, oh, and the Subaru. Uh, so that's yeah, three. Yeah. This would be sh- God, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the this is the fourth, sir. At this now, see now, John, I 
I never have asked you what color your car is, and I, cur- I, I have not known until this point. However, I've just assumed, just by knowing you, that you could not possibly be a white car person. I'm not a white car person, but my first car that I ever owned was white, not because I picked it, but because I inherited it from my parents. As is um, often the case, yeah. And I'm not sure why they picked white in it. I didn't mind. Oh, yeah, that was the 92 Civic. Uh, I didn't mind white on that car, but it certainly was is not the color that I would have picked if I bought it myself. But, it, I mean, for, for the reasons I, I cited before, if there's anything I don't like about the shape of a car, no way I'm going to get it in white. Uh, and even if I did like everything about the shape of the car, uh, which is rare, I would be worried about dirt. And white cars do look kind of scummy, especially if you're in you know, New England in the winter. They get all gross. Like the same reason a black car is kind of a maintenance headache, where it looks great when it's all black and sleek, but then the road salt covers the whole bottom third of the car. It's not looking so hot anymore. See, I, I think, you know, anytime you bring up car color choices, you always hear this argument about dirt and showing dirt and everything else. I think it's all just total bullshit. I, no, I really don't think that different colors really show or hide dirt any better than other colors in a meaningful difference. Because, you know, the fact is cars are these highly polished, clear-coated, beautiful, you know, sometimes these metallic colors that look really nice. They're these, these, these huge sheets of usually curved metal that, that are highly polished and painted like this and look awesome when they're clean. If you put dirt on any of those colors, you're going to see it, especially if you put a lot of dirt, like if you're driving on salty roads or in on dirt roads or anything like that, like you're going to see that regardless of what color you have. But it's like it's the misting effect, like in, in New England, especially in the winter when you have the spray and the salt, like you get the white misting and a white misting over a pure black car radically changes the color, whereas a white misting over, say, a silver car very subtly changes the color. Obviously, gloss is always going to go away from dirt, but salt in particular, because it's not, like, localized, it's, you know, very subtle. It, it, it'll be very subtle on a car that kind of matches the color of road salt, kind of neutral, whereas on a, on a black car, it will totally show up. And white, it's the, the mud and dirt factor. You can get a surprising amount of, like, sprayed-on mud on the bottom part of, like, a, a forest green car, and it'll be like, oh, it kind of blends in. But you get that on a white car, it looks like someone took a dump on the bottom of your car. It's just terrible looking are you sure that's not because if you see a forest green car in 2013 it's probably like a 94 camry which already looks kind of crappy and therefore that is, standards are lower that is absolutely an M- untrue. mg it is something. either a camry or it's a uh, subaru outback wagon that hasn't died from like 2001 or 95 i just tried to put a link into the two chat things because i can't find the group chat room of this uh, laguna seca blue yeah it wasn't laguna seca it's le mans i was wrong well, because that blue is not good. No, I that blue was See, terrible. See, that's French. I'm not even going to try it. I don't even know if that's how you say it. I'm not going to try. Well, that's because you're smart. I actually just pasted it in the group chat area because I can find it because I know how to use well, a computer, but now I John. I can see your link. Where the hell is it? All right, well, I see. Let's see. What do we got here? I think this podcast should contain as much clicking as ty- and typing as possible because everyone loves listening to that. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a nice blue. That's a decent blue. Is yours see? a coupe? No, is mine it? is not. Mine is a four-door. I, I, the only coupe I've ever had is the Z, and while it was fun, I don't think I'll ever do it again. The coupe has better-looking headlights and a better-looking rear end than the, uh, the sedan. So, so are you kind of like a rear-end guy with cars? No, I, I like the whole thing. I'm just saying that certain cars have... How about your women? Different, <laughs> different <laughs> characteristics that, that stand out. Well, I found, I found over time that, that what I look at in a car, like like the the features that I care a lot about have changed, and so more recently, um, I, I I just had to 
place an order for my next car because my lease is going to expire, and we'll talk about that some other time. But um, this is the first time I've ever, I've ever purchased a car where I've given a crap at all about the wheels. Like, wheel styling is this whole different world. The first time, really? All That's the usually... previous cars I've had, wow. uh, the, the ones I've gotten used, I haven't even noticed the wheels. And the wow. ones I've gotten new, I've just picked the stock wheels, whatever they came with. I'd never have paid extra for premium wheels or anything like that. Uh, I've I never put aftermarket like... rims on. I've never even purchased a tire. I thought that was the most common thing that even, like, non-car people would be picky about. I thought that was, like, the, you know, the... The lowest hanging fruit of once you become interested in cars' appearance, wheels right away. No, am I crazy, Casey? No, I would agree with that. And actually, one of the things, so the 335 that I got, it was impossible to find because I was trying to get one used, um, and and I wanted one with the M Sport package. And so this actually ties into what both of you were saying. The M Sport package, if I'm honest, is really an obnoxious. I'm going to put aesthetic cladding all over the car. That makes it seem like it's closer to an M3, but it's not. And the reason I wanted it was because the front air dam, uh, way low below the kidneys on the front of the car, is quite a bit bigger than on the standard E93 series. And I think it makes a world of difference. So for me, to your point, Marco, I never used to care about an air dam, but now I feel like that makes a world of difference. And the other thing about it that I really loved were the wheels. And the the link that I pasted in the chat with the the Le Mans Blue has different wheels, even though I believe that is an M Sport. Um, but the point I'm driving at is, I would agree that wheels are even amongst non car dweebs are one of the things that almost anyone will look at. Because that's why the, all the aftermarket rim market is so popular. Exactly. Because you know people who may not be that into cars that like the wheels jump out at you. Uh, I would break down car aesthetics into like pieces named after body parts because that's the way we do it. There's the face of the car. <laughs> like, you know, the front of it, BMWs have a distinctive face with the headlights as being the eyes and kind of the, the grill as being the nose and mouth and stuff like that. There's the tail of the car, which is kind of the car's butt, and you can have, you know, a big fat butt, a low squat butt or whatever. Uh, and then I, the the, ne- the other piece is like the overall shape, like how long are the overhangs? Is it like cab forward or cab backward? Does it have a humongous hood and a little bubble on the back or is it more centered? It's the reason It's the reason mid-engine cars look so exotic to us because the position of the engine allows the overall shape of the car to be different. Regardless of the details of the face, regardless of the details of the butts or even the sides or anything, mid-engine cars look different because the overall shape is different. And that's why you know a 911 looks different because the engine's in the back. Uh, those are the, the major components of, of a car and, of course, the wheels that we just talked about. And everything after that, I feel like, is details. Like, I don't like the body cladding or the scoops on the side are ugly or, you know, one of my... Everyone has their own little individual peeves. One of my peeves is uh, side view mirrors. The way they're integrated into the rest of the car can really be off-putting to me, especially on some supercars where they get fancy. Hmm, that's an interesting thing to to pay yeah, attention it's, to. It's, it's an idiosyncrasy. It's like, like caring about somebody's own. ears. or No, it's like caring about someone's <laughs> cuticles. See what no, I, what bugs me is I've I've recently gotten, um, you know, as since I've been in the market for a car the last couple of months, I've I've been paying a lot more attention to the ones I see on the road because whenever whenever a new car for me is near, I get totally obsessed. The same way you research toasters, John, I get totally obsessed and and pay attention to everything on the road and, and do all these res- all this research. I cannot for the life of me figure out how Toyota has not sued Hyundai. Have you seen? I I'll, I gotta find a picture. First of all, we have to create show notes. I have to create a way for those to appear, and then I'll, <laughs> I'll put a link to these in these in these mystery show notes. Have you seen a recent 
Hyundai sedan recently. Yeah. No, I think they have parts of them that are distinctively Hyundai. Like, I don't think they look as much like Toyotas as, as you're making it out to be. Because when I see a Hyundai, it looks like a a Toyota that has mated with the swamp thing. <laughs> oh, wow. Be- because That's they have generous. lots of kind of lots of kind of weird like aquatic creases, fins and and striations that Toyota doesn't do. Toyotas are less like bars of soap than they used to be, but uh no, uh, I, I, they're very distinct. In, Irish Spring or Dove? Uh, Probably Dove I, recently. It, it, no, because Dove has chiseled edges. It's more like <laughs> Dove that's been sitting in the bathtub <laughs> for a while. God, we're a bunch of nerds. That's amazing. You're right. No, I, I think with Hyundai, what 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 bothered me the most? I was in a, I was in a parking lot and I was driving through and I saw a Hyundai something sedan. But and the the badge, the logo badge on it. First of all, the the styling of the Hyundai badge. You can tell it is intentionally a lot like the Toyota badge. You know, like it ha- it's like the metal inside the oval with the big kind of the, the diagonal H, and it's all kind of swoopy. Like it looks very similar to the Toyota badge. And then, you know how it, with Toyota and Lexus, they do that obnoxious thing where they have like the dithered, faded blue tint inside the badge for hybrid vehicles. Y- y- have you seen that? Yep, I've they do it. the exact same thing on Hyundai. I, really? I don't even know whether it, it needs to be a hybrid for them or not. It the Hyundai badge that I saw in this it looks exactly like the Toyota hybrid badge, and like and even like and, oh it was a Sonata because I remember even seeing the word Sonata on the trunk lid, like it looked the same style that Toyota uses when they put Camry on there. Like it's it was such a blatant rip. I I, I was like I, I tried to take a picture of it, but I, I didn't have time. You uh, sure they don't use uh, Toyota's hybrid powertrain? A lot of make car makers do license that from Toyota and use it, so it could be they're actually using that powertrain. Maybe that's it. Yeah, you're right. That could be it. But you think they would because it seems yeah, like ton, tons of people do that. I'm always amazed that like no, these but Hyundai fierce competitors will will license each other's stuff because like well we don't have a one of these and they do, and despite the fact that we're deadly enemies, we'll like okay we'll just use their stuff. Like, like That's like the uh, Toyota Baru, the God, I'm drawing a blank. The um, yeah, the Subaru BRZ and the or the yep, FE86, yep. I think. Oh, it's the same as the Ford Probe and the uh, what was the other one? Come on, car people, Ford Probe and its the, twin was the mm. oh, there the um, no, I'm wrong. Is it one of the European things that that they mentioned on Top Gear that I always forget about? You, you guys could both be too young. The Ford Probe had a twin that I believe was a Mazda. Or going back farther was the well, the Plymouth Laser. Was it the 626? No, look that was a sedan. Now. Anyway, there's been these these twin cars like the current FRS and BRZ uh, from many different makers. And the Ford Probe was one of the twins, and I forget what the other one was. And the Plymouth Laser was twins with the Eagle Talon. That's a little bit different because there's both GM. But uh, Well, and then the but, Talon yeah. was the Mitsubishi Eclipse twin. Yeah, that there was you go. That was, the, other, that was the Japanese one, yeah. The Mitsubishi Eclipse, the, the uh, Plymouth Laser, and the Ford, uh, the Eagle Talon uh, were the same car. And the Ford Probe was the same car as some... Maybe Mazda thing, you know, Ford and Mazda have been always been close, but yeah, that that happens a lot. And like the Subaru thing is weird because like they say, so you're like, wait a second, you you pick the powertrain from Subaru? That's what you picked from the Subaru part of this partnership? I don't know. People love horizontally opposed engines. Casey loves them. I, whoa, whoa, whoa! Based on one <laughs> purchase, now I love horizontally opposed engines. You love the wine. Oh God! It's actually, sh- shimmy in the wine. It's funny because one of the things that uh, that 
struck me as so odd about the legacy was that despite being a turbocharged car, you could never, ever hear the hiss of the turbo. And one of the things that I actually do not like about the 335 is that I can actually hear a blow-off valve. So now I sound like one of those douchebag kids that used to drive <laughs> around campus when I was in, in school with their, you know, at, new at the time WRXs with these, you know, blow-off valves. And so they just, you know, drive around, stand on the gas from zero to 10 miles an hour and shift. So all you hear is, whoops! And that's all you heard over and over again. And it was ridiculous. And I, I guess it's just because I'm so sensitive to it, but I can hear the blow off valve in the 335. Or maybe it's a recirculating valve, which is, I think, how the Subaru worked. But whatever it is, I hear it and it reminds me of a blow off valve and it drives me berserk. See, I, I don't know much about how these things actually work and, and what the sounds are that I'm hearing. Um, the sound I, I attribute most to turbocharged cars is uh, in the exhaust note when you lift off the gas, and I think it's the wastegate, if I've heard these terms correctly, and it kind of sounds like the exhaust like has like a congested throat for a second. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, I don't know I mean, if that's from the turbo. Yeah, I'm not sure which one it is, but the wastegate, it, well, I am no mechanic, but my understanding is the blow-off valve and the wastegate basically serve the same purpose, just do it different ways. Please and I, email Casey. Yeah, please email me. Oh God, I'm screwed. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, it's it. Turbocharged cars are just an odd breed, which you could probably dedicate a whole episode to if we really cared. We but, will. Yeah, and we probably will. Where did we start? Oh, we were talking about mutant clone cars. Yeah, I don't know why they decided to take the Subaru drivetrain, and why not take a turbocharged one? I mean, why we're using this naturally aspirated, horizontally opposed four cylinder. And what is, from everything I've read, this unbelievably great and nimble uh, chassis. And, but from everything I've read, it's very underpowered, and that just yeah. seems terrible. I see, I see a lot of them on the road. I think that car is a great idea. Oh, it's I, a great idea. That's an example. Like, like if I look there. at that car, the thing, when I saw pictures of it, I'm like, eh, a little homely, right? But when you see it in the road, I still don't like the face. The butt is so-so, but the overall shape is very attractive. Like, it doesn't look like other cars in the road. It reminds me of kind of like, not your uh, bloated 90s 300Z, but like the one before that. Oh, you can kiss my... <laughs> <laughs> I, like that. I like that 300Z. It was less bloated than current cars, but it was like the 300Z puffed out. Like, you remember yeah. the original, like, the, oh, yeah. the, the Datsun 240, and maybe that's also before your times, but like small no, Japanese about. cheap uh, rear-wheel drive sports car that was like, you know, actually cheap, that like you could buy it. You could price shop it next to an Accord, you know, that type of price. Yeah, the Z, we had the, we bought it from the original owner, and, and he had the sticker, and I don't remember exactly, but I want to say in 1991, the Z was like 37000 or something wow. absurd like this. And this was a non-turbo. This thing was obese as a whale. It couldn't get out of its own way. It, it handled reasonably well, and it was a lot of fun. But in 91, it was like $37,000. I mean, that's just unbelievable. That's wow. Yeah, yeah. So in today's dollars, that's like what, like three hundred thousand. Yeah, it's it, whatever it is. It's a lot. I can tell you that. <laughs> Put your car in the chat room there with the t-top. Yeah, but before that, it was like small, oh god, that's a horrible rice lightweight. Oh, well, you know, it's hard me. to find. Google image search just shows me lots of things with body cladding. What can I tell you? Well, it was a rice-friendly car, to say the least. Yeah, no, so is my 92 Civic. Are we allowed to say rice? Is that, like, racially insensitive, or has it become uh, a neutral it, term now? I think it is not neutral, and it is racially insensitive. But the thing about it is, is that, like, we're, you know, you are besmirching the, the 
I guess it's indirectly the people who made the car, but you're kind of talking, it's more like you're talking about geographically speaking where it comes from, and then you're saying, you know, but like, the, I think it may have wrapped around because it's we're using it as kind of a term of, well, I don't know if it's a term of endearment because we think that kind of uh, aftermarket stuff is a little bit gaudy, but uh, I don't know, people call the, the motorcycles, they go really fast, rice rockets, and I think they mean it as, well, I don't know, do they mean it as a compliment? I don't know. See, yeah, that's a sure whole other. motorcycles. I don't know anything about American cars. I don't know anything about. Um, I mean, there's the SUVs, vans, that whole category. I don't know anything about. Like, oh, once you get your minivan, you'll know all about that, right? No, I don't think so. I, I've selected <laughs> my next family car, and it is not a minivan. I, I saw your next family car. I was going over the Throgs Neck Bridge uh, just this weekend with my brother, and, uh, and a four-wheel drive uh, BMW 5 Series drove past. So there's Marco's next car. Could be him on his way home. We'll see about that. Oh, see, I see. Pri- Did you I go out? Is that what happened? No. What are you kidding? Uh, oh, that's saying. terrible. No, Did I feel you? privileged because I know, and I, now I'm not going to say anything. Right. See, the problem with Audi. First of all, I found that every time, like different different car brand dealers, I found are actually fairly consistent be- between different dealerships in like their attitudes and how nice they are, how nice they are to you. Like, have you found that? Like, that the, like within a brand, it's usually pretty much the same. I haven't gone to enough car dealerships to know, and everyone I've been to for every brand has been slimy. See, <laughs> so. I, I found so I, I I did all like car dealership stuff when I was growing up in Columbus, where I I would always go with anybody in my family who was going going to the dealer to get a new car or something, um, which didn't happen much because you know my my whole childhood we basically had three Toyotas that like that covered my entire like from birth until I graduated from college that was three Toyotas. And uh, and only because the first one was like ten years before my birth is when it started. Uh, so, but I would always go anyway, and of course I would always you know like fake that I was interested even when I was seventeen. And oh yeah, look at that MR two, that's interesting. Uh, and tr- you know try to get myself a test drive, and usually I would succeed. Um, and they knew I couldn't buy it, you know, but they didn't. It was like you know a Tuesday they were bored. So anyway, um, but I found like Toyota has been remarkably bad. So between Columbus, Pittsburgh, and two different places in New York, I have found Toyota dealerships have been ridiculous, just sleazy, like nasty, rude, and and and, and the salespeople badger me like like crazy afterwards, like they'll if you give them a phone number that's actually real, they'll call you every single day wondering if you've made your purchase decision yet and when you want to come in. It's crazy, like super high pressure, all the sleazy stuff with the, you know, go and like, go to my manager and I'll see and all, and all that stuff, which, you know, you wouldn't think so because Toyota otherwise is a pretty respectable brand. But like it just had, like, and Honda I found was very good. Honda was really super nice in, in two different dealerships. Honda has been awesome to me. Like really, because my, my car before I, before the, the dark time in Brooklyn, that was a Honda. And, uh, Perfectly nice people. Nissan, really super nice. Volkswagen, terrible. Audi, terrible. I think your sample size is way too small, though, because how many Volkswagen dealers have you been to? Two, three? Two, like, yeah. It's, it's too, the sample size is way too small because I, I think it comes. what it comes down to is that unlike Apple stores, uh, car, car manufacturers either can or just do exert very little control over their dealers. 
And so the variability is crazy because, like, from their perspective, we just send you these cars and you have to make numbers or whatever. And there are different strategies to do that. One of them is the obnoxious hard sell. And as obnoxious as that is, it probably produces results. Other one is like the, oh, the we're friendly come to us thing. And that works for some people. And it could be regional or just who happens to own the thing or who owns the chain. You know, it's some dude's last name. It's like insert last name here, Honda. Right. And you just learn that that guy makes all his uh, his dealers do the high pressure sales thing, but like Honda, I think has no control over that because they just, you know, they have a dealer network and it's like a franchise thing. And they're like, I don't care what you do in your dealer. Just follow our rules and sell our cars. Yeah. But then like the national place calls you after you buy something and give you that big survey and all the dealers are like, please rate us all fives. It helps yeah. a lot. Yeah. That's, that's my favorite part of the entire experience. They'll cut our that, funding. They're going to kill my entire family. If you put anything other than a five, <laughs> yeah. every single question. That's usually, <laughs> that's the highest pressure part. They sell that harder than like the extended warranty. Yes. That's because that's what they're, you know, but like, I, I think some of the luxury bands do exert some control. Like I think, uh, like the, the, the real high end brands like Mercedes, BMW and Lexus, uh, and I think I just read something about Lexus redoing this, have like a kind of like a story Bible for a TV show, but they have it for their dealers now, or like Apple store stuff. Like this is the way the dealership works. This is how it looks. This is the roles of the people who are involved in it. When you come in, this person greets you. They give, you know, like they really try to nail it down to provide a consistent experience. But of course you can afford to do that when the margins of your car are as big as the margins for BMWs. But when you're selling Hondas, you're selling, you know, $16,000 Hondas, you probably don't have a lot of money left over to be enforcing some, you know, strict policy. That, that kind of reminds me of Saturn, though, speaking of uh, Casey's other terrible cars. Uh, <laughs> the, the Saturn dealer thing, remember they did, like, the no-haggle pricing and, like, you oh, know, yeah. we're all family here. Like, they definitely had a theme, you know, from the mothership, you know, granted GM, whatever. But they said, we're going to do this weird side project with these terrible plastic cars that no one wants. But the dealers will be really friendly, and you won't have to haggle, and it'll be a fixed price, and we'll see how that works. But it turns out if you make lousy cars, that doesn't work either. Well, and it's funny you bring that bring up Saturn in that regard because uh, there's a used car dealership, and I don't know how big they are, but CarMax is a, is very much taken up that no haggle mantle that that Saturn once had, and so CarMax actually is a spinoff of Circuit City, and Circuit City was based in Richmond, Virginia, which is where I am, and so there's a CarMax every three feet here, and they are very much the no haggle and you know hey if you buy the car suite if you don't we really don't care sort of place. And it, it's it's an odd experience. My mother-in-law actually just bought a car from them, and I went along with her to help her out when she did her initial uh, visit. And it's very weird. They didn't really give the hard sell. Now, with that said, when we bought Aaron's car, my wife's car, uh, she has a, a 2007 Mazda 6, and that literally took us a year to get the dealer to come down to a price that we were willing to pay, which was not that absurdly low a price and it they, they did the hard sell they did the oh let me talk to the manager at one point towards the end they said yes we'll match that price we'll give you that price and then we came in to sign the paperwork and they said well only if you finance through us and <laughs> it was just uh, it was awful it was absolutely terrible we found in our in in so one of the ways i've seen so many dealerships around here recently is because uh, a couple of years ago we were looking for a car for my wife and uh, we we did eventually get a Lexus IS250, which I'll tell you all about uh, some other time. That's and you say whole... I have the selection cars? I mean, come on. I didn't pick it. And it, to to be fair to Lexus, it is a reasonable car. In, in many ways, it is quite good. In many ways, it's not. Um, so anyway, we were looking at so many different dealers because what, what she wanted was a car that does not exist in America, which is a nice, small hatchback. That is that has a luxurious interior. The Audi right. A3 is almost that car. 
Um, but that's pretty much the only choice so far. And, and like nothing else really comes comes close to that that's, that's available in the U.S. right now. Uh, Marco, God help you if we ever release this, because every GTI owner under the sun is going to email you and chew you a new one. Yeah, that, yeah. well, the A3 is like a luxury GTI. Right, right. And, and it feels like it, which is unfortunate because it costs twice as much, roughly. Um, and in short, uh, the problem with the Audi A3, one of the biggest reasons we did not select it is because it only has one powered seat. I, I don't even know how to say this delicately, but do you know how douchey you sound right now? <laughs> no, but think about it. Th- think about what that indi- – so it's this car that costs a lot. It's like once you add reasonable options to an Audi A3 – I off the top of my head, I forget, you know exactly, but I think it's like a thirty-four thousand dollar car, thirty-five. Like it, it can get up there really fast. Well, GTIs but, are darn near thirty, I think, or even over thirty. Are they really? Well, I think, anyway, I don't know that the the A three can get really expensive really fast once you put any reasonable options on. So you're driving around this this very expensive car, you know, for what it is for for a small hatch. Yes, it has a luxurious interior, you know, sort of, but for the most part, it is, you know, it is that, but. It doesn't really feel like much more of an expensive car than the GTI does. And the GTI, oh my God, please email Casey. The GTI whoa, whoa, doesn't feel that different from a Golf. Like it, the interior quality wise, drive wise, of course, yeah, it's way faster and everything. But the quality of the interior, the seat comfort, all that stuff, not that different between the Golf, the GTI, and the A3. And that's really, like, the problem is, like, you know, whenever you get a car like that, you know, the, the base Golf is what, like $17,000? Something oh, I don't like that? No. So you basically feel like you're still in a $17,000 car in a lot of ways, even when you're in the $30,000, whatever, $1,000 A3. Yeah, that's the problem with uh, cars, uh, luxury brands made by uh, luxury cars made by brands that aren't really luxury brands, is that at a certain point, you, go, you overextend the, company, the parent company's parts bin. Right. right. Uh, the Audi A3 shouldn't have that problem, really, because Audi does make fancy cars. But the great, the best example is like the Corvette, where it's like the Corvette is uh, has has been, especially in recent years, a very respectable performance car. But it's made by a parent company that does not have an excess of interior parts and design know-how to make a luxury thing. So you buy a $100,000 uh, Corvette uh, ZR1. And the interior looks like a $15,000 car with junky plastic and uncomfortable seats. And you're like, what's going on here? It's like, well, I don't know. They just, they don't, ha- they don't know how to make nice interiors for their cars. Sorry. Uh, we, and it's, you would think they would, could throw more money at it, but either it's just not a priority or they just don't have those things available. So, of course, like, no matter how much you gussy up that Volkswagen, like, it, with the ex- exception of the, what, Phaeton or whatever the hell that crazy Phaeton, Phaeton 150 grand VW that didn't catch on. They just don't have parts in the, the the Volkswagen parts bin to make a luxurious car. They just have sturdy, kind of workmanlike German parts. Well, and and the and the other problem with the A3 is that because you know, so it is it is basically a an Audiified like a luxury version of the GTI, but then it's also Audi's lowest end car, yeah, which uh, means you're, you're Audi doesn't want to the cannibalize nicest, their high yeah. their higher end sales. You know, the A4 is not that much more above it. You know, segment wise. Um, especially like the A4 wagon, it's not not that much, you know, bigger, different, more expensive. It's very close, so they don't want to cannibalize those sales either. So you have like this ugly duckling of a car where it ha- it has to justify its Audi badge. It is a premium priced car, 
but Audi doesn't want to make it too nice. It's also a pretty small car. There's not a lot of you know room there to add a bunch of heavy, luxurious stuff either. So you know you want to save weight, save size, but still have this thirty something thousand dollar little hatchback. It's really nice. Isn't the A3 also another case where there's a small version of a well-known U.S. brand that has been available for Europe for seven generations, and they just never brought it to the U.S. because we don't like small cars, and all of a sudden they deign to bring it to the U.S. I don't know. Actually, realize realize what we're getting is the current generation of the A3 that's been available in Europe for two decades. And in Europe, it comes with a stick shift and cloth seats. But here it's like, oh, well, those Americans, they think Audi is a luxury brand, so we better gussy it up. And, you know, so it's not like you're getting the you're getting the fancy version of what is actually a much more prosaic car in Europe that just hasn't been sold here because we're big, fat Americans. Right, exactly. I mean, a very similar problem to the BMW 1 Series. Very similar, where in, in Europe they sell a whole lot of 1 Series cars that are actually exactly what Tiff was looking for. The you know small hatchbacks that are that are, have nice interiors, but they also have a, a huge you know medium and lower end market that we don't get over here. Um, you know, and you know little things that have like one and a half liter engines and stuff like that. But that's but the reason I brought up the A3 is because I, I really have to give Volkswagen credit. They had the worst dealer I've ever been in. Like we we go there and we're trying to because we we wanted to basically compare uh, the GTI and the A3 and see if we could test drive both and see how different they were. And the dealers, we go in there, and they have these, these like, square, leather-cushioned, kind of modern takes on chairs. And you sit on it, but it's, it has a slight incline. So you sit on it, and you immediately just slide forward. Like, you just slide off. So they had these chairs you could not sit in. The only people that, were, that had figured out how to sit in these where the two salesmen that were sitting in these chairs, the only place where customers can sit and wait for anybody, two salesmen were sitting there eating lunch. These giant, like, you know, unwrapped sandwich papers, like, all over the place. It, like, there's, like, there's nowhere else you guys can go. Like, it was so weird. So, you know, we go immediately, and, you know, we, we were looking around for somebody to help us. Nobody could help us. Nobody was available. Nobody was there, but nobody was available. <laughs> Eventually, we, we get help from, you know, we finally find somebody who can help us. And we start asking, okay, so, you know, we're looking at, at maybe, you know, a GTI or, or maybe just a well-configured Golf. You know, what, you know, what's your availability? You know, what, what, what are these options that are available? And we had a question about the armrest. The guy could not answer a single question. Like, he, did, he couldn't even tell us, like, whether they would have any or not. Like, it was, it was ridiculous. Like, simple questions. Oh, is this thing an option? He's, oh, I don't know. Let me let me look in the book. And he would, you know, we have, we have this big book. Oh, I don't know. He flipped through pages. All it's his first all week in the job, Marco. Give him a break. I don't think so. Like it just and and he didn't. I don't know. Wait, when was this? Because you might not have looked like serious buyers two years ago. Oh, yeah, well, but, you, but you're both short and look young. We showed up in a three twenty eight. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't have been that. Yeah, bad. But they don't know that. They don't know that. Do they see you drive up? It, it, they might have actually. And here in New York, there's not a lot of room for parking lots. So generally, when you when you pull up to a dealer, you're parking right in front of the showroom in one of four spots they have available, maybe, uh, and and then you know they have some giant garage or a lot somewhere else that has their actual inventory in it. Uh. I have some real time follow up here. From who? I was, I was I, from me, from myself. <laughs> I I was trying. I was killing me that I couldn't remember what the heck the twin card of the Ford Probe is, and maybe I was just misremembering it, just because uh, Ford Probe is based on a lot of Mazda parts. Uh, so 
to make up for my flub in thinking that the Ford Probe had a twin car, I looked up another one. It's the, the Mitsubishi 3000 GT and the Dodge Stealth. Remember those twins? Wait, those were with the Probe? I remember those. No, those are not with twins. the Probe. Those oh, are like I'm say. making up for my for my misremembering okay. of the Probe. The Probe was a Ford car that was filled with Mazda parts. Right. Uh, but the Mitsubishi 3000 GT and the Dodge Stealth were the same car with different, you know. Right. And they were the competitor to my 300ZX. Well, maybe not mine because I had a crummy one, but in principle. The 3000 GT was this massively – wasn't it really long? I, eh, I remember fairly. it being weird. It was a fake Ferrari. It was a fake Japanese Ferrari. Yeah. Just like the MR2. The MR2 was a miniature fake Japanese Ferrari, and the Mitsubishi 3000 GT and Dodge Stealth were bigger. The best thing about the Mitsubishi – speaking of styling, this is one of my favorite things I've ever seen in car styling. So the Mitsubishi 3000 GT was shamelessly copying off – I think it was the – God, I wish I wish I could remember the car styling was it was copying off of. I think it was copying off of the uh, Ferrari F three sixty. I don't. I'm not getting the models right, but they had scoops in the side of their car that. Oh no, I have it reversed. First, they were doing the three forty eight. So the three forty eight had like the fins, kind of like the Testarossa, but not really. Uh, like fewer fins on the Ferrari three forty eight, right? And so the Mitsubishi 3000 GT had little fins on the side, like the 348. And when the 360 came out and traded the fins to much larger scoop things, they changed the body cladding on the side of the 3000 GT from a bunch of fins to, to scoops. And it was just like this tiny little mirror of, yeah, we're, we're tracking Ferrari styling that closely. That in this, like The cars look nothing like each other, except that it was clear it was trying to look like Ferrari. But this one little detail was like a sticker on the side of the car, practically. Not really, but like, this tiny little detail, like, oh, they, they changed it. It's not, it's not fins anymore. Quick, get a new piece of plastic and slap it on there so it looks like <laughs> these. It was just, it was so, it couldn't have been accidental because it tracked it so closely. And yeah, that, that's, that's just... The Japanese have a little bit of a pro- aspirational styling problem, especially a long time ago, and I think now they've kind of found their own. But. Now, did you know that both the 3000 GT VR4 and the twin-turbo 300ZX of that era, so I'm talking early 90s, both of them had four-wheel steering? And if memory serves, at least on the Z, at low speeds, it, and I'm going to butcher this, so email Marco, but at low speeds, the rear wheels would turn with the front wheel oh, no i'm sorry against the front wheel so if you're turning the front wheels to the left the rear wheels would turn to the right yeah, if i'm not I, mistaken so, so you could shorten the turning radius and then at high speed it would actually do the reverse yep uh or the prelude had that too i think yeah very well could be i'm not sure to be honest four wheel steering was uh was a thing it was definitely a thing this is the same time that VTEC was a thing and if you're really young then i've just dated all three of us yeah, but That's now right. they have now there's like 14 more letters on it. It's like I VTEC 17 T Turbo. Yeah. You know. so is four wheel so I think that's still around in higher end cars, right? Four wheel steering. I honestly don't know. I think it was an option on the five series, but not. I think not with X drivers. There was some kind of weird condition. I I think it was not compatible with all wheel drive, which is bizarrely uh, counterintuitive. But hey, speaking of, when do I get to lecture you about you not needing all wheel drive? Uh, I guess when we, no, I was gonna probably when we talk about my next car. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say that, then I didn't want to spoil it. (laughs) Squarespace is a do-it-yourself website platform that makes building a website extremely easy. The designs that Squarespace start you with are both beautiful and simple. All you have to do is add your content, and you will have a great-looking site. Squarespace sites also include responsive design, so your website will automatically resize and show up perfectly on any device. Every account comes with cloud hosting, real-time analytics, a free domain, and 24-7 support. So whether you're a creative professional, business owner, or simply need an online presence, Squarespace makes it easy. 
Our site, Neutral.fm, was created in just 15 minutes on Squarespace. Check out a free trial at squarespace.com. If you decide to continue with your site, Squarespace is only $8 a month, and use the offer code NEUTRAL1 during checkout to get a 10% discount. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Yeah, I put I put the two pictures in it. I put a 348 and the original Mitsubishi 3000 GT styling. Actually, I think that's a Dodge Stealth, but same difference. See the see the little fins. Oh yeah, and the little fins, and then Casey put in the one when they changed it to be the bigger scoops. And if you, if you go find like a, a 360 with the bigger scoops, or the actually the the 430 had the double scoops like that, they were just they were tracking that styling cue on the side of their cars because and they, they totally tried to make them look the same body shape wise. The 3000 GT was actually a pretty good performance car. For its time. See, I always yeah. really wanted an MR2, like before the Spider generation, like the, before the, they the fire, early yeah. 90s generation. Because um, it looked like a miniature Ferrari, and you're like a miniature person, so it was a good fit. <laughs> it looked really cool. I've never in my life even been in one, though. Like, I've never there, I've never gotten to the point where I could almost buy one and to, to actually take a test drive of one. You know, by the time, I mean, in 1994, when they stopped making them, I think, in the U.S., I think that was the year. I was in sixth grade, so I couldn't really test drive one new, and they were just they just sold so badly in the U.S. that I was never able to really find one widely available to test drive anywhere. No one I knew ever had one. Even the MR2 Spider when that came out. First of all, I think the MR2 Spider was was kind of a weird thing to make and kind of a weird thing to call MR2 because it was so unlike the previous one. Uh, In some, you know, the previous one was a T top. Amazingly, Uh, I. That's the only reason I know what T-tops are is because the MR2 was one. Um, and, you know, it was like, you know, this, this two-door coupe. The MR2 Spider was convertible only, all soft top and way, you know, this short, small car. And, you know, I guess it was, it, it was, it was confusingly similar looking to the Porsche Boxster to, to the casual eye. And I think that kind of hurt it because everyone thought it was just like a, a rip-off Porsche. And then... But but at the same time, I think it was not nearly as good or as popular as the uh, Mazda Miata. So it just didn't do well in the market. The the Emergy Spider. But uh, I did. That was my. That was the first time where I ever thought I was really getting away with something by convincing a dealer to let me test drive a sports car. Was the MR2 Spider one? You know, I was I was bringing in my mom's '94 Camry to get an oil change one time, and uh, oh, you know, I have. 20 minutes to kill let me let me let me go to go over to sales it's always an easy trick you know oh i'm here for service oh maybe i'll consider an upgrade and it's like yeah obviously this college kid driving a 94 toyota camry that has a that has like a hippie dream catcher hanging from the window it's obviously not his car uh well maybe i don't know but <laughs> obviously not, not this kid's car it's probably not in the market to buy a brand new 20 whatever thousand dollar sports car but okay, it's a Tuesday. We're slow. Let's give them the chance to drive it. They hand me the keys. They didn't even come with me. Wait, seriously? Yeah. They, they, this, the sales guy hands me the keys to the MR2 Spider, parks it out front, and says, "All right, kid, here you go. You know, come back sometime." Like it was so. I'm like, "Holy crap!" And it was a stick. And I, I had known how to drive stick for like three months before this. I wasn't this could very, be a topic for another show. Yes, I wasn't very good at it yet. I wasn't very confident in my self-driving stick yet, and here they are handing me the keys to this brand new <laughs> MR2 Spider. It was the most fun and yet in horribly intimidating and nerve-wracking test drive I've ever I've ever taken. I didn't even take it very far. I was scared to be away for too long, so I took it like just down the block and back. 
I was so freaked out. And then we come back. The hardest thing I've ever done driving a car, the highest stress thing ever, I had to back it into a parking spot. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And it was the parking spot right in front of the giant glass window of the dealership. So, <laughs> you know, backing this this car, I I barely am confident enough to even go or stop with it because it's the stick that's unfamiliar to me, and I'm I'm an amateur stick driver, and <laughs> and I had to back it up in this little parking spot in front of the glass window. Oh my god, that was stress. Fortunately, nothing bad happened. I go in all freaked out, thinking I really got away with something. You know, meanwhile, you know they don't give a crap. I didn't know that. I thought I really convinced them. Oh yeah, I'm a serious buyer. They couldn't give two crabs. They, they didn't care at all. Just an MR2. Right. You just liked it because it looked like a Ferrari. Yeah. And, and the fact is, once I was driving, I didn't like it. Because, first of all, I, 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 don't, yeah, I don't like sitting that low. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm short and I, I feel like I, I have to get a better viewpoint all the time anyway. But I don't like sitting down that low, like, like in, in those really small, uh, sporty cars. But they had that weird thing where the – I think they did this with the MR2 where – for like two years, Toyota had this stupid design thing where they would put the gauges in the middle, so you'd have to oh, yeah, you'd have yeah. to look to the right to see them. Remember that? Toyota Echo did that. Yeah, a yeah. lot of them do it. For you don't have to change focal distances much from the road. That's the theory. That was the theory. I don't know how it, it was so weirdly distracting it, to have in, to look in somewhere practice, else. They do it so they don't have to have a different dashboard for left and right hand drive. That's the ah, thing that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> only if they're only if they're straight on. If they tilt them towards the driver, well, no, they, they were tilted, ones, and and they were they were tilted, and they were in these long tubes, like they were really far away. I, maybe it was the focal distance thing because they were they were they were inset very deeply into the dash, and they, and they had they each had these big tubes coming out. Of the, it was weird, but uh, now and so I didn't, you know, the MR2 is a really the all the MR2s are pretty obscure cars. Now the next block over from me. There's two MR2 spiders on that block. I don't know. Like, I've never seen one anywhere else. There's two one block away from my house. Well, that was the thing where it's like uh, the shape, the overall shape of the MR2, it looks different than other cars because it's mid-engine, which is also why you can't see out the back of it. Right. All right. So it was a way to say, can we get that? Because people sense that shape. That's why they sense that supercars are different, even if they have no idea what, even if it's not blood red or anything like, ooh, is that, that car's different because it's low and wide and shaped differently, right? So they said, if we can do that, but still make the car cost like as much as like a fancy Accord or, you know, something, then, then we can get that market. And it kind of worked, but it also kind of like overheated and had bad performance and sounded lousy. Well, I and I think the problem, like with Toyota, they've, I think they've always had this problem. Uh, well, at least at least in the last 10 years or so, is that nobody really looks to Toyota for sportiness. You know, like or Lexus, for that matter. Which well, is another to, the Supra facing. was a respectable, sporty car until they just made it into a giant whale and then sent it on its way. But the Supra was a valid name in the you know reasonably priced sports car world. They just, they just right, lost but the when plot. was that? Like, when was the last time that was yeah. available? Mid-90s. And in fact, right. I was going to bring the first up, MR2. I just saw one. I just saw one today on the road. I almost drove off the road ogling it. The big whale one you saw, Supra? Yeah. Yeah. I remember those. They're all right. I so, finally did, it's a more real time follow up on my thing here with the <laughs> the Ferrari. Ferrari F, the Ferrari three fifty five had the double side strakes and that is the one that the the GT copied. So it was the original three thousand Mitsubishi GT was copying the three forty eight. Then when Ferrari went to three fifty five and changed from side strakes to big openings, so did uh Mitsubishi. So I have all four pictures on my screen now confirming that I'm not crazy. So John, well, actually, I have to ask. Um, you've you've made a number of references 
um, to to big fat bloated cars or or to some car that used to be good becoming big fat and bloated. Um, yeah. So so first of all, I think it's obvious that you're you know you're you're anti fat people. Um, but, <laughs> but 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 I think I think it's worth asking because you mentioned also that uh, you were probably going to be replacing your ancient Honda Civic with a newer Honda Accord. Now the yeah. Honda Accord, the modern Honda Accord, the last two generations, by all measures, have been tremendous bloated cars. In fact, the, the Accord is classified as a full-size sedan now, like up, up not, there with the Avalon. Like, that's not usually what I mean when I say bloated. I'm not talking about the EPA classification of the car. Well, it's a, I mean, the, the new Accord is a massive car. Well, so here, the, the, what, I mean, what I mean when I say bloated is two things. One, sometimes in terms of styling, the, the cars look like someone put an air tube into them and blew them up. So the, the Supra was not a big car. Like the last Supra that was around, Toyota Supra, was not like a big car. It probably wasn't even that heavy. It was probably really small inside and out in terms of wheelbase and everything about it. But the body style looked like someone had put a tube in there and went puff, puff, puff until it just ballooned up. Like it just, just looks bubulous. Uh, as opposed to uh, the, the exact opposite of bloated would be uh, the Ma- last Mazda RX-7, which looked like someone took a a deflated balloon and stretched it over a piece of muscle. That's what that car looked like. That's, that's, the, that's the rotary one, right? Yeah, not the RX-8, which is kind of ugly. The, the, the last RX-7, go, go Google for a picture of it. That is the opposite of bloated. It just looks like tight and everything. So that's styling-wise. Uh, and non-styling-wise, just the general trend, if you look at how much cars have weighed, the weight of cars is just going up, 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 up. That's why the, the FRS and the BRZ are, are, are sort of reversing that trend of saying we're going to sacrifice sound deadening material and all these other things to build a lightweight car right it's yeah it's it's kind of like uh <laughs> it's it's it actually to make another uh, a fat analogy it is kind of like like size inflation and in clothing you know like where where like these the car classifications have grown and grown and grown because uh i mean part of it's been for safety equipment you know, yeah, like, like well, I mean, safety they, regulations, they have to right. add so many airbags and roll bars and But it's not just that. Like that. It's just all, this, all but, these high-tension steel stiffeners they have to put in the doors for the side impact and everything. Like, right. the cars weigh a tremendous amount more than they used to for the same full-size car. You'd be amazed if you go back and look at, like, how much of that giant whale of a car in the 50s weighed. They weighed nothing because they were empty shells, and if you hit them into another one, they crumpled into, like, a, like a soda can, and you all died, right? And now they have all these reinforcing materials and so much, you know, and now basically it just comes down to cost. Like, you can make any car, you can shave a thousand pounds off any car by just, I'm going to build the entire frame out of aluminum and all the skin is carbon fiber and now it costs 200 grand, right? Well, you can easily do that or you make the whole thing a a carbon fiber tub and, you know, now it costs a half a million dollars, right? So we have the technology to make it light, it's just in terms of expense. But yeah, the the weight of, within a particular car line, look at the weight of the Honda Civic starting from 1984. It's just a big slope up. It just goes up, up, up. The car, and yeah, the car does also get bigger because because Americans are fat and also tall, taller than the Japanese people. But it's safety stuff, everything. The cars get heavier and heavier and heavier. And the trend is like, look, it has to stop at some point, or all our cars are going to weigh ten thousand pounds. We have to we have to find some way to combat, you know, the, the increasing weight of cars. Uh, so that's another aspect of bloat. Uh, but but the main aspect I'm bloat we're talking about in Hondas when we do a show about Hondas has to do with just the philosophy of what's important about the car. And I, I would agree with you, the last generation of Honda was bloated in many of the regards I just talked about, but the current generation of Honda, although I haven't test-driven one yet, from everything I've read and having seen plenty of them in person, seems to be reversing that trend a little bit to sort of go on a diet and slim down, both styling-wise and, uh, you know, responses-wise and everything else. See, Honda, Honda is special to me because... Uh, so, so to give my brief car history... Um, you know, growing up, always had Toyota Camrys. 
uh, and then well, one Corolla, then then two Camrys, and and then college, I, I briefly borrowed my sister's Corolla, and then I had my own Nissan Maxima, which was awesome. I loved the Nissan Maxima; it was it was my second favorite car I've ever owned, um, it, all around. And then Maxima started having lots of maintenance problems. I went into uh, I, I I got my very first new car. In fact, the first new car of anybody in my family. <laughs> they were all used before that. Uh, very first new car, I, I bought a Honda Accord. And on paper, the Honda Accord is basically the perfect car most of the time. Like if you, if you go and try to buy a general purpose sedan that's going to be reliable and a good value, a Honda Accord is, is almost always the right choice, or at least one of the right choices. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, so, it's great on paper. And I had that car for I think four years, and what then what uh, year was it? Uh, it was a two thousand four. And so I, uh, I had it for a few years. Then I moved to Brooklyn, and I tried keeping it there. Keeping a car in Brooklyn is is usually a terrible idea. It's extraordinarily expensive. Insurance goes through the roof. Uh, parking is a tremendous pain or a tremendous cost and a, and a medium pain. Uh, it's it's ridiculous. So eventually. After spending way too much on insurance and parking, I sold the car uh, for way too little money. Uh, and then for a while, I lived in Brooklyn. Then I moved out of Brooklyn, bought my 328, and have loved everything since then. Um, the The Honda Accord is by far the most forgettable car I've ever had. The Camry is way more forgettable than Accord. I'm going to contest you on that. The Camry is the the uh, the standard bearer for a completely forgettable pile of mush car. The Accord is le- much less forgettable. It's not as memorable as a BMW, sure, but it's much more memorable than a Camry. I mean, did you drive? You said you had your family had a series of Camrys and Corollas. Yes. Did you drive them? Uh, the last one, yeah, because I, I was too young for the and, first. And two. you didn't notice the difference between that Camry and the Accord you got in terms of like how this car feels and how responsive and lively it is to drive. Granted, it's not a performance car; no. it's not doing anything for you tr- drivetrain wise. I, I see a big difference between because I've, I'm always at the bottom really? of the barrel with these cheap cars, and I see a big, big difference between equally priced Camrys and Accords. Yeah, I, I would have put them as roughly equals. Like no, really? not even not even close. Yeah, I got I got to side with John on this one. I mean, every time I've I've never driven a Camry, but I've driven a fair share of Accords and I've been in both and, and the, the Camry is just a, mo- it is a marshmallow of a car and the Accord at least has, it feels like the wheel is connected to the, to the tires. So when you turn the wheel directly, <laughs> directly, the suspension and the suspension is not a hundred percent tuned for butt comfort, you know, <laughs> it actually has a little bit of, you know, st- stiffness in the springs and does not wallow and just sway from side to side like a giant whale yeah big difference i mean powertrain wise neither one of them is doing anything it's a four-cylinder engine i mean but even the powertrain i would say i would give the edge to honda because they came up with vtec first and so their four cylinders got a little spunky mm. uh, and you know the, the toyota four cylinders were just kind of quiet and refined with all their nice balance shafts and sound isolation but they didn't have a little bit of spunk I've never driven the V6 Accord, so I can't speak to how that is. Now, to that end, the, the last time I looked at Accords, uh, they wouldn't, they didn't offer the V6 Accord with a stick. I think in any capacity, is yeah, that still usually, true? They usually stingy so. about that. I don't know. I ne- I'm never shopping for the V6, but I assume it's still true. God, that's terrible. I mean, if a uh, no, except for car, the coupe, they they usually do it on the coupe. Like if the coupe is their expensive one, and, and they did distinctive styling for the coupe the past couple of generations. So you, right. I think you could get the coupe with the V6 on a stick. That's the other thing about Hondas. They have much nicer sticks than Toyotas. Toyota sticks are just like Subaru sticks. They're just like a little rubbery, 
blob coming up from the the bottom of the car. Oh, I agree with that. My Subaru's clutch is the worst clutch I've ever used. And in fact, I had it replaced while the drivetrain was getting worked on because basically my, I think it was my center, my transmission and differential, which is one unit kind of exploded. Um, and so I had what? them do the clutch. It's a story. But anyway, I've had pretty much the whole drivetrain on the Subaru replaced. But um, so I had them do the clutch while they were in there because the whole car was in pieces anyway. And even after they gave me a brand new clutch, and remember, remember, I bought the car new, but the clutch has always been terrible. And, you know, it's a four wheel drive car and I cannot launch it with a quickness off the line to save my life. I'm either darn near stalling or I'm dropping the trans. And the, what about the time. shifter? Doesn't it, I was uh, I drove a Subaru stick once in my life, so maybe mm-hmm. it was a long time ago. It was my friend. Oh, it's but terrible. the shifter felt like it was just. It felt it's like mush. a rubber. It felt like a rubber stick. Like it, you couldn't. It, it was just. You couldn't tell. There was no you know positive connections of where this stick was oh, going. Absolutely. And oh, it's just terrible. It was as though you took a, the the handle of a wooden spoon and are pushing it through mashed potatoes. <laughs> yeah. And wow. I would say the the best stick I've ever driven is the my my dad's BMW three. So they nod to the BMW in the stick department. Well, I mean, and sticker, you know, stick is a whole category. Might as well start it now. Um, you know, I I feel like you know in in the U.S. there was there was some stat that um, I recently saw that uh, only seven percent of cars sold in the U.S. are sold as sticks, and and I, I actually thought that was high. Um, it was higher than higher, higher than I expected. It's probably count is it counting like trucks or something or commercial vehicles because <laughs> that seems high to me. Good too. question. I don't know. Yeah, that, that it very well might be. Um, well, to the, to that end, when I was looking to get the three thirty five, so what I ended up with was a twenty eleven three thirty five uh, sedan with the M Sport package, like I'd mentioned. And to find a three thirty five is not hard. To find a three thirty five with the M Sport package is slightly hard. To find a 335 with the M Sport package and a six-speed, a, a, a manual transmission, it took me months to find one. It w- and that's why when I found the white one, I just pounced. And I know you're not you're all rolling your eyes as I'm saying this, but truly, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it it is impossible to find them because generally speaking, who buys a 335? Probably an old person who probably has no business driving a oh, manual trailer. No, no an, interest. White is an old person color. Speak, that was what I thought Marco was God, getting. But the white, so is, white is kind of a girl car color. <laughs> oh, think. God. I quit. I'm quitting. <laughs> I'm, just right not, now. I'm not saying that, like, you, that you can't get that car. But I'm like, if you did gender ratio breakdowns of, like, you know, what, you know, pink would be a good example. Like, uh, that we sold 10,000 pink cars. How many of those buyers were men and how many buyers were women? You would expect there to be more than 5,000 of those people were women who bought the pink car, right? So there's just certain colors that appeal to certain people. Not that, like, you buy that color, it means you are feminine. It's just that those colors appeared <laughs> uh, appealed to feminine people. And I have a feeling that the breakdown of white cars would be that more female buyers are buying white cars than male. Is it because they think white, the men think white looks less manly? Like, it's not... It's well, not see, projecting would, their manhood adequately. I don't know what, but like there are certain cars that appeal to different. The, the, the gender breakdowns for color for colors, I bet, are pretty stark for, when you get to the extremity colors out of like you know gray and brown. Well, here's know. here's the problem with your white theory, uh, is that th- there are there are a few different groups. So within like you know people ages sixteen through forty, maybe I would expect it to be more women. Maybe, but see, there's two things. One is that old people love white cars. That's true. That is true. So, and and I don't I don't think that would follow a gender um, bias up there. In fact, it might even be more male uh, in the older people. Um, so that that's one thing. And then the other thing is, um, sports car buyers, like 
oftentimes sports car people love white cars. And they were, are probably predominantly sports male. Sports car buyers like white car? Yeah. What, what sports car do you usually see in white? Like, when you say, when I see that car, chances are better than when I see any other car that it's going to be white because it's a sports car. What's making you say that sports cars usually mm. come in white? Mm, that's a good question. Well, yeah, I, see, I don't know what you're talking about. I see, on like, on, on like online forums and stuff for, for, for car enthusiasts, I, I very, very often see white and maybe it's just because i i dislike white cars so much that, that i know <laughs> they just jump more. out at you maybe it's a confirm- yeah. confirmation bias. i'm a car color racist i, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> wow. i i really don't know i i don't I, I i i just seem to see white a lot you know all this discussion of all this discussion of a uh, car color reminds me of my, my favorite car story when you know I've, I've been reading car magazines forever you know and the, i'm the most into cars of the people in my family and this must have been when i was like i don't know 17 or 18 or I don't know, my, my sister had gone off to college and maybe she'd graduated college and she was going to buy her first brand new car and we were talking on the phone i think or something and and i you know i sensed that she was you know she was talking about car stuff i'm like oh well, this is an opportunity for me to talk to my sister about a topic that i'm interested in. i'm into cars i can advise her like it's when someone like when a relative is going to buy a computer and you want to talk to them about the options or you know ipads or iphones so i'm like oh have you thought about what kind of uh, car you're going to get uh you know the different options or whatever is there anything you're thinking of and she goes I'm thinking about a lot. I'm not sure. And she's like, you know, hems and haws for a little bit and just pauses her really long time and then finally comes out with, I think it's probably going to be a blue one. That was their major, like, the the selection criteria was not two doors, four doors, anything like that. The entire, the agonizing part of, I'm going to have to buy a new car. What kind of car should it be? The answer was probably a blue one. I thought about it a lot, you know, and I think blue. (laughs) Well, but that matters. Color matters a lot. It matters. But, like, to that me was too. the only thing that mattered. It was like, <laughs> well, that was the prob- first thing. Probably that a blue one. <laughs> that's that's, that's not fun. really what I meant about me advising you what kind of car you should get. No, I, color does matter a lot, though. I mean, I like I I like my cars to be the darker colors. I I currently have a black car. Yeah, I actually have two but, black cars. That's another story. Um, but you know, I I I love black, and you know, my Maxima was dark green. Um, but that's that's another whole other story, by the way. When I oh my god. You think Casey had a hard time finding a a used 335 with M Sport that was a stick? Uh, so my <laughs> the the Maxima that I had right after right after or right during college was the first car that I was allowed to choose. So of course, in typical Marco fashion, I did tons of research and blah blah blah. Uh, what I wanted, and and so my mom had said it was going to be like an early graduation gift when I was still a sophomore, just because I really needed a car for various uh, logistical reasons. And so okay, she was going to buy me a car. She said I had a budget of $10,000. Find something used that's going to be reliable and, and decent. Okay. I had a whole summer to look. and uh, Spring and summer, actually. And I looked for months because what I wanted was a four-door sedan that was at least a V6 and a stick. And even in 2002, looking at cars mostly from the late 90s, that was really hard to find. See, but you're already lying because what you really wanted in the world was a four-door sedan with a V6 and a stick that had the, the, the little sticker in the rear window that said 4DSC. Did your Maxima have that? Do you know what I'm talking about? 4DSC. I don't think I know what that is. Oh, God. I remember, I, I, to be fair, I love the Maxima. I truly do. I'm not, I actually totally agree with your choice. But on one of the generations of Maximas, on the, I believe it was on the rear window, they had 4DSC written there, and under it in very small letters, four-door sports car. Oh, my God. 
I kid that was, you not. That was the advertising campaign. Nissan yep. Maxima was the four-door sports car. That's fantastic. Which I can't even believe they got away with that. Like, I remember seeing the ad campaign, and it never occurred to me. It was like, wait a second. Did BMW 2002 never happen? Like, when, you know, <laughs> this is a, is this, are we just erasing history, and it's the four-door sport? I mean, Maxima was, you know, bring, again, it was like bringing the sports sedan to the masses in the same way that the Datsun 240Z let you have a sports car on, a, on the budget oh, yeah. that you would buy a family And it car was, on. I mean, it was, you know, I had to eventually find this car. I mean, and... Because at the time, very similar to now, it was very hard to find four-door sedans that were sticks, except the super lowest-end models, which were never V6s. So it was it was extremely hard to find. Eventually, I found this car. It had like all it how it was the it was a Maxima SE, the sports edition. So it had oh, like it had like nice. the white dials. It was really cool. It had like all the leather and the boat. It, it had every option that was available on an SE. So like there were there were a couple of minor things that you could only get on the super high end trim that was only available on automatic, so I didn't get that. But like it had it had you know the sunroof, the leather, the Bose stereo, everything. It was an amazing Wait, car, ninety six, Maxima SE, and it, I just I loved that car. It was so great, and and I really didn't like a car that much until I got my BMW until the three twenty eight. It was such a nice car. However, mine was a massive maintenance headache. It like. Which is unusual for these, because I still see them. Because because I owned one, I have you know, I, it catches my eye when I see one. I see nineteen ninety four to nineteen ninety seven that range of Nissan Maxima. I see those all the time. Yeah, they sold a lot of them, but that was the Maxima's awkward years. That was not a good styling generation for the Maxima. Yeah, it had that the, weird the, like oval hump butt and everything. It was the the, the tail lights were just not good. The front was okay, but like it it was the the generation before that was distinctive, and the current generation Maxima. I really actually like that styling. It, it's at least it's distinctive. Well, see, when I see a new Maxima, I say, "Oh, that's a Maxima." It does not look like that's true. Another, you know, but see, I, I think they. They messed with the Maxima pretty badly in the in the early two thousands. They so there was there was a generation that I had like ninety four to ninety seven I think, and then there was like ninety eight to two thousand two two thousand three something like that, and that one was pretty good too. And then after that, they tried pushing it up market to make it more profitable, and so they they added tons of stuff. The price went through the roof, and it became this big, heavy, blobby, weird car that was kind of, it was like they were trying to compete with the avalon and they were trying to compete with the entry-level luxury cars because I, I i don't think Infinity oh god, was doing I, I, that well. i had blocked this one out i just googled it oh god i'd forgotten about this one yeah the one i'm talking about not, it was that terrible. was not good that was not good at all well no, the worst be- part about it the, the worst part about it was here it was that the maxima was kind of the star or, or the, like the 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 ultimate as much as I'm making fun of it, it was the ultimate cheap four-door sports car in the sense that you could get a large engine and a stick shift. And then here it is not too long later, like five, 10 years later, I think they actually put a continuously variable transmission in it, Ooh. like a full-on CVT yeah, automatic. Nissan loves CVTs. They're oh, like every, God, yeah. Everything oh, yeah. in, from Nissan has CVTs. Sometimes it's not even an option. You can't even get rid of it. Right. And so here it is, like, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Here it was, it was such a great buy and such a great pick for somebody who cares about driving. And now it's this bloated CVT sporting piece of junk. Yeah, I mean, like when I when I was looking at my 328, when I when I left Brooklyn, and when I ran screaming from Brooklyn, (laughs) if the Maxima was still the kind of car it was in the 90s, I probably would have bought one of those instead. Well, it is now. Like, I just pasted in the current generation Maxima. Current generation Maxima, aside from reliability problems that always haunt Nissan and the fact that it's not as good as a BMW while trying to be a BMW, it's it's pretty, you know, if you want to get a distinctive sports car with <laughs> you personality, think these are good it's looking? four doors. 
Yeah, Actually, this is a good-looking one. one. These are both the same car, just from different names. I mean, one of them has no, they, the, they have the crazy aftermarket, rims. aftermarket yeah. rims on it. I'm just Google image searching. You know, <laughs> the, se- like, the second one is really pretty. And I should point out, it's white. Uh, well, they're both like that's the same car. It's that's not a different generation. Like they have that the two the two like the I don't know not the teardrop eyes like the two little spiky things. When you see one in person, they look better than they do in these pictures. Yeah, but, I don't care about they, that headlight. Like I feel like Nissan styling in recent years, like they've gone. Well, I don't know. It, it does feel inflated to me. Yeah. Well, remember Nissan is Infinity too, and Infinity yes. had had one of the most beautiful cars of the last like. 15 years was the the uh first generation of the i can't remember the part number it was it was the coupe one casey do you know what this was uh, the, the g37 uh yeah but not the current generation wait, the one, one that I had think, like the I clock think, butt oh the g35 uh let me look that up let me see wait hold I on i hope this isn't the one i'm thinking of because the one i'm thinking of was hideous this should be good as we all sit silent, I, waiting for us to Google. Well, you can listen. You can listen to me type. I, if I didn't mute it, let's see. Do you have the required uh, clicky keyboard? Yeah, it was you're the, on the I think it was the. Yeah, it's hard for me to tell. Like they made this. This car looks so beautiful when they first came out with it, and then they revved it and ruined everything that was that was good about the car by subtly changing all the proportions. Colin, try this on for size. I'm going to paste something in the. Chat. I remember the. Yeah, let me see I if th- this. I is... think it was this one. Oh yeah, that one's all right. This this was just. Everything about it was in perfect balance. It wasn't flashy. You can't see the front of it, but it had like it was nicely shaped. The details were all good, and they took that that exact car and they just subtly changed it, like a few inches here, raised up there, and just made the whole thing ugly. And it was like, oh no, you had it. That was it. That was it. Was like it was like the nine eleven shape. It was like iconic, and they just threw it away and said, no, we're just going to keep bloating this up <laughs> and make weird lumps on it. Speaking of, have you seen? I know this isn't supposed to be about news. Have you seen the uh, the C seven Corvette? I, yeah, I was going to bring that up as well unfortunately it, what I happened to its butt it. i tw- as i tweeted the, the corvette designers like the let's just stipulate that the corvette powertrain and chassis people know what the heck they're doing they make cars to go around tracks fast right and they're and even the interior guys are learning a little bit but they lose it so badly in the styling details oh, like the overall God. shape of that car is fine you know big long hood like the kind of thing in the rear but the details oh what are they doing it's like someone just chewed up a bunch of uh, plastic car cladding and spit it on the car oh this Ugh. is terrible from the i only saw it from the front and i thought it looked great now i'm looking at a back uh, view and, a, oh, it's God. just a big mess it's like it's like it's like a hot wheel some kid who designs hot wheels went in there and said i want to make looking fast car no it's not, <laughs> not good. Yeah. good it group. looks no, it the, looks terrible i mean like i you know the, the the hallmark of a corvette is those those four round tail lights if you oh, change they love, they love messing with that like the mustang with the three vertical right things then they've screwed with that, and people get cranky. Just stop messing with it, if you, you know. Right, you can change almost everything else about the design. Yeah. Just don't change like the the couple of hallmark features. Well, even Porsche did it. Porsche's hallmark on the 911 was two circular headlights, and they said, you know what? It's the 90s. We can smooth those out into these fried egg shaped blobs. And people said, no, no, they got to be circle. And they said, okay, we'll change them back, <laughs> just like that. <laughs> That's exactly what it sounded like. 